What I'm going to try to attempt to do this evening is unpack what I believe to be, and I'm going to make the case for what I believe to be the main message of Jesus's ministry um, here on earth told through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And before I make that case, I'd like to ask some of you, so let's have a little conversation first. If you had to summarize Jesus's ministry on the earth as told through the Gospels, what do you think it would be? And this isn't a gotcha question. It's, there's going to be a lot of right answers in here. Um, and I'll explain that later, but shoot some out. Somebody be brave. Who's the first person? Yeah, so to come in, and as we weren't able to fulfill the law, he came in and fulfilled it for us and, and mended that relationship. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Woo, boom, which is what you nailed it. So I'm just going to skip. If you had an answer, you're wrong. You missed it. That's what I'm going to make the case for this evening. It was the inauguration of, you got it, Sam, the kingdom. Uh, we can think of the gospels in a lot of ways. And I, myself included, we read them a lot of different ways as it was God. It was Jesus walking through and doing miracles, showing that he was a, he is deity, which that's true. He was doing that. He was proclaiming that he was God or it was, uh, um, Jesus is, is coming and he's showing us in these, all these little stories of how to live and what we can take out of this personally, which is also true, but those are all subordinate themes to the major theme, which is the kingdom of God. And we see this really clearly. If we pull back uh, in the gospels and we look at their overarching theme, it's easy to see, but even more so Matthew and Mark both uh, spell it out for us real clearly Uh, in Matthew 14. uh, It says, Oh, and I'm going to be flying through. Sorry, I didn't pass out scriptures. I'm going to be flying through these notes and which means I'm going to be flying through scripture. So please be checking me, but I promise you that I have actual scripture here. I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, so Matthew 14, 4, 17 says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's a summary of Matthew's giving. And also in Matthew, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God more than 50 times in only 28 short chapters. Hands down, it's the thing that Jesus talked about the most when you're talking through the gospels. Then we go to Mark and Mark opens up with a very packed kingdom statement, which I honestly don't think I'm going to be able to get to. So this is just a teaser and you're going to have to go say this yourself, but it starts with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God that is loaded with kingdom language. Uh, but then we can also just go a few verses down into Mark 1 14 and it summarizes Jesus's message. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the main theme that I am going to, I'm going to make a case for that. This is the main theme that all four gospels are saying. They're, they're uh, speaking of uh, the inauguration of the kingdom. I'm so stoked. You nailed that one on the head. Oh, right on. Well then watch out. Cause I don't know if I'm going to get this real good. Um, so if we're going to do this, we need to first define our terms. So 
first, you need to know that we'll, you'll hear two terms, uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And just the first thing real quick, know that those are synonymous with each other, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Make sense? Secondly, what we understand when we hear kingdom, and, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this, we hear kingdom and we think of a place, right? The United Kingdom. You think of, that's a geographical location. So when we think of the kingdom of God, we think of the geographical location of God. And then it almost gets a little more fuzzy than when we think we hear kingdom of heaven because we think of heaven as a place. So that's a location. And we think of kingdom as a place. So it's the place of the place or it's the geographical location of this place. And if we study what Bible is really saying, it, it's so much more than just a geographical location. In Greek, it's uh, Basileia, and in Hebrew, it's Malkuth. And both of them, even though they're speaking of a location, the location is assumed. What they're saying, and I believe we miss, is it's speaking of a royal power, kingship, dominion, rule, and reign. So when we hear the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, what can make it fresh in our mind and get us an understanding of what it's talking about is the reign of God, the rule of God, the sovereign power of God. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, the reign of God is here. And it gives us a more clear picture of, of what we're saying when we say the kingdom of God. Make sense? So then the question is, well, then what does it mean for Jesus to say Uh, As we just read in Matthew and both Mark, what does it mean for Jesus to say that the the kingdom of God is here? If that's his central theme, well, what does that mean? This is where it's going to get gnarly. To unpack this fully, and I really want to do it this way, uh, we have to go all the way back to Genesis. We have to go to the very beginning to see what Jesus is saying and how much weight it carried for Jesus to say, that the kingdom of God is here, that the reign of God is here. So let me paint a picture all the way back in the Genesis. So we have God creates everything. He creates order out of chaos. He brings everything into alignment and he's creating the stuff and he's calling it good. It's functioning the way he wants it to function. And then we get to Genesis 1 26. If you want to turn there quickly. And God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. So let's go back. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And the very next statement is describing what that means. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let them have dominion. And then he bookends it later. Uh, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He said, fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion. So the image of God that we are bearing is that we are the vehicles by which God rules the earth. So God had created this place, Eden, where both heaven and earth were fully there together. They were fully overlapped. God was communing with man. Uh, It was no problem. It was perfect. 
and God created this world. Everything was in, in good order. And then God said, okay, I'm going to rule through men. And so I'm going to make man in, in our image. And we're going to have men be the vehicle by which we rule creation. Man was to cultivate and bring forth the full potential of the earth. So it's not a, uh, we hear these words, uh, have dominion over rule. And in our minds, we can have a, a bad connotation. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying, hey, you guys can just abuse the earth. What it's saying is, I created this. It has a function. Now your role is to be the vehicle that brings the full potential of this earth. It takes this earth where I've designed it to go. You're going to cultivate it as a good leader would do, uh, who has a disciple or who has, who's uh, training up kids is you're gentle. My, my goal for my daughter and my son is that I'm teaching them and, and raising them up and having rule or dominion over them. Isn't a, a bad thing, but I want the best for them. So I'm cultivating them. That's what he's saying. Man is supposed to do, uh, we can further unpack that this is the image that we carry. This is the, the job that we have as believers, but we are going to, uh, we're going to do a quick little study that I hope you guys can start using in your own personal devotion time is not only translating the words, but understanding the importance of translating culture. So let me give you an example of what I'm going to try to explain is that I could and what I'm covering tonight, I can get really off the rails and lose my place. And this is totally within the realm of possibility. And then I say something, uh, I say, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And everybody would, thank you, Mark. <laughs> everybody would get the reference, right? You guys would all know like, oh, he means like, okay, we're, he's, he's off the rails. Now imagine somebody thousands of years from now comes across the transcripts of this sermon for some reason, and they're reading through it and they get to a part and then transcripts, it says, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And they go, oh, so he must've had a friend or someone there present was named Toto. And he either thought he was in Kansas and he didn't know, or maybe he was from Kansas and you start developing these ideas but if you were to do any kind of research on our culture today, then you would, you would study other context around. You would see like, oh, it was a movie. He's quoting a movie. I get it. It's, he, he doesn't know a Toto, and he's never been to Kansas. So that's what we need to do with Scripture. So not only is God saying we made man in our image, and the, the next statement is directly saying that we're giving you rule, and that's the image of God. But then if we look at the surrounding uh, ancient Near East context is that in uh, ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, those kings, if you look at those writings, you guys can. Uh, but as you look at those writings, those kings, those pharaohs back then commonly believed themselves to be gods. And a common phrase in writings then, what they would call themselves the image of God. So image of God was a kingly term. And not only were they the image of God, but these kings and these rulers would then have statues in places that they weren't physically. And these statues were then literally the image of God to display their reign, their sovereign power and their rule in these areas where they physically weren't. And so to us, Image of God, to me, image of God just flies by until you understand the context. And if you're an ancient Jew and you read that, 
immediately. There's no mistake. This is kingly language. It's talking of a king. Listen how many times. uh, So God says in the beginning, we're going to make man in our image. And what does that look like? We're going to give him dominion. Then he describes that dominion over the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So it's, it's bookend with kingdom language saying God has created these people and these people are to rule, be the vehicle by which God rules the earth. Um, we have a, well, this, we have a cross. So a cross, uh, a dove, whatever you want to say, the 10 commandments, Um, we have all these things that represent us, represent us. And I want to take a quick little side rabbit trail and just say, understand that you, me, us, we are the image of God. And I know now in our country, um, and we're blessed in this country, but I know we feel like we've, we've taken these shots of, uh, we don't have the 10 commandments in the courtrooms or we don't have prayer in schools. And I want to, explain that that isn't the main problem. The main problem is this isn't, this is great. And this, this brings some heavy stuff to our remembrance, but it's not the image of God. If I go put that in a, in a building, that's not going to do anything. What's really going to affect the courthouses, the classrooms, our homes, our workplaces, our country isn't symbols, but it's the real image of God. It's us. Those places going down, as you hear Rob over and over and over and over preach this. So if any congregation knows it, it's us. But it's not the absence of the Ten Commandments or prayer in schools. It's the absence of the real image of God in the schools. It's the absence of the real image of God in the courthouses. It's the absence of the real images of God in daily life affecting the culture. And the biggest one, it just, I never want to teach without touching on this subject because it's, because it's the biggest, it's the biggest issue we have in our culture today. And for the, for quite a while is the true atrocity isn't that somebody comes in here and says, we can't hang a cross. And it isn't because it isn't uh, someone goes and says, you can't have 10 commandments in the courtroom. And it isn't prayer in school. The, the true atrocity is that the image of God is being destroyed daily in abortion. And that is destroying this blessing of God. And it should be the, it should be the number one thing on our radar and our culture. And the number one thing that us as believers, us as Christians should go in truth and love and, and go effect. So rabbit trail, we're back on. We are made to rule the earth. We are the vehicle by which God rules the earth. Amen. That makes sense. Image of God. Got it. So Eden is picture of original intent. And I'm going to try to come right back to that over and over again. Eden is the original intent that God gave us. Heaven and earth are fully overlapped. And from from the beginning, God has ruled the earth through his people. Uh, N.T. Wright in his book, Simply Christian, says it this way. uh, God has committed himself ever since creation to working through his creatures, in particular through his image-bearing human beings, but they have all let him down. Uh, He has a lecture 
uh, I forget where he was at, but he has a lecture where he actually ends that, that quote differently. And I like the impact that it has when he gave it live. It says, God has committed himself ever since creation to working through his creatures, in particular through his image bearing human beings. And he has never rescinded that charge. It's still our charge today. It's powerful. Further support is if we go to Psalms 8. You guys know Psalms 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. It's kingly language. You have made him, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. This is the role. And this is the part that I'm harping on because it's, it's going to be the basis of, of the rest of this, that this is all kingdom language that God has created us to rule and reign on this earth, to be his representatives, to be his image bearers, to, to rule and to reign. So if there's points, I don't know if anybody's taking notes, maybe, um, God rules through his image bearers, mankind. That's Number one. So then we get to Genesis three. Genesis three is the fall and it's directly related to this. So God is reigning King over heaven and earth, which are fully overlapped with each other. And the deception is that, Hey, you can, God's telling you what good and evil is. You don't need him to tell you what good and evil is. You can decide what good and evil is. And when you decide what good and evil is, you're going to be like God. He's hiding it from you. You don't need to trust him. You can do it on your own. So it's usurping the authority. It's saying, I don't want to live under this rule anymore. I want to, I could be a king. Well, then why aren't, why aren't I my own king? And that's, that's the fall. And that lays the first brick in the kingdom of this age, the kingdom of, of sin and death, the, the age of this world. This is uh, the beginning of the fall. And I am going to try to fly through um, this story to, and, and pinpoint as best I can major moments to show you this foreshadowing and this echoing that, hap- that happens in scripture um, as we go through Genesis. So we have Adam and Eve beginning with mistrust and they, they come out from underneath the king and that separates them. And you can even see in that moment, the grace of God by not just wiping them out saying, all right, well, you're done. Death, God's living on his own. That's the love that the father had for us. So then he separates them because they can't be in the presence of God because he's holy. And then we go from Adam and Eve. Then we have Cain and Abel with Cain murdering his brother. And then from Cain, we trace that line. We have Lamech who brags that he's even more wicked than Cain. And then from Lamech, these bricks are just being laid over and over again. And the world is going just compounding its chaos, compounding what it looks like when, when man rules, when man is uh, the Lord, when man is King and reigning over the earth. And then we get to Noah and God's in his mercy and his grace, which when you view it this way, you really, to me, it highlights God's grace and mercy throughout the old, the whole old Testament. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to wipe this out. Noah, but I'm going to save your family. So we know the story of Noah and the ark wipes everything out. First thing God says to Noah when he gets out of the ark is very reminiscent of what he said to Adam. So it's like, Hey, let's do this again. And it, doesn't take long for Adam to get wasted 
and do something real sketchy with his son. And just like that, man is back on this, this death spiral of thinking that he can be king. And so we go from uh, Noah, then we get to these kingdoms are building up and they're populating. Then we get to the tower of Babel. And this is the pride of man being the, the Lord that God has designed us to rule and to reign. And we're doing it, but we're doing it poorly because we don't know how to do it without him being the king of us. And so we have the tower of Babel that they, they, their pride builds up and they build this tower. We're going to reach the gods. And again, in God's mercy, he doesn't just wipe everything out. He scatters them. And so then from there, we have the tower of Babel and God in his wisdom knows they can't do this. They can't operate and they can't rule without me. So he goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then through you, you're going to have many sons, but through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. So that's the covenant that he has with Abraham. Abraham then has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has his 12 sons, which eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. All the brothers don't like Joseph because he's got a cool jacket. So they send him, they sell him to Egypt uh, where he starts in prison. Joseph promotes all the way to the second in command. Uh, in Egypt to Pharaoh because he's interpreting dreams and he's uh, the famine comes and, and they've been saving grain. And so, and not only saving Egypt, but Joseph's family who sold him into slavery, his brothers, they have to come to Egypt to get food. And he, he's, he's there. Joseph has mercy on him. Pharaoh's like, Hey, this is your family, man. You're my boy. If that's your family, that's my family. Come on. Like, and, and everything's great. And so there's a moment here where I want to emphasize that they are, Joseph is doing good. His Israel is doing good. Jacob and his 12 sons, they're living and they're thriving in Egypt. And even after Joseph and his brothers pass, Israel is growing and multiplying and they're planting crops and their crops are coming in great. And there's this moment, granted it's years, but there's this time where things look good, but have to emphasize it's, it's deceiving. It's not original intent. And without it being God as the King, it will always lead to slavery, always lead to slavery. Man's kingdom will always lead to slavery. It is inevitable. So sure enough, things are going great. Pharaoh sees they're multiplying. I don't like it. I don't want I don't want these people multiplying like this. So he has a decree. Let's, let's kill all the boys. That's when they save Moses, send Moses down the river. He grows up in, in Pharaoh's home. Pharaoh has now is the worst character in scripture thus far. He's enslaving people. He is the epitome. He is the empire of man's kingdom. This is what it looks like when man is king is that enslavement it's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is that picture. He's that foreshadow and that echo of that picture. Um, so Moses then leaves. He runs away. Remember, he kills that Egyptian. Leaves. He runs away. The burning bush. God says, hey, go free my people. He goes back. Then you have the, the plagues. And then we begin this really cool foreshadow, which you should go study it. I, I originally had in my notes, I had to take it out, but all the, how Jesus is the next Moses and how tightly their stories uh, 
correlate with each other. It's really awesome how they echo each other. So we have the seven plagues that end with a Passover. God goes to Moses, God through Moses. So again, God's doing what he's always designed. He's, he's not acting on his own. When he does something, he's doing it through people. He's using Moses. He's, he's still operating the same way. So through Moses, he confronts Pharaoh and says, let my people go. He says no. And so then God says, all right, this is how I deal with, with people and things that enslave my people. And God opens a can on Pharaoh and rips him up. And he says, all right, hey, take him, get out of here, go, changes his mind. And they chase him. Then we have the Red Sea uh, in Exodus and this is what God says in Exodus 14, 18, real quick, showing that God's declaring, it's me. I'm the king. I'm the one that you guys need to follow. It's not Pharaoh. He says, then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And that I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. I'm over that. I'm the king of kings. And apart from me, it's going to be, it's going to be slavery, guys. I'm the Lord. And this is what's best for you if you would just follow me, original intent. Um, then really cool. I wouldn't be a worship leader if I didn't touch on this point right here, but maybe I gave it away. But do you know what, ha- what happens right when they get through the Red Sea? Yeah. First worship song. And the, the, uh, the theme of that worship song is Exodus fifteen eighteen. The Lord, sh- the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So the people, it seems like, They get it. He's king. Lord, God, you are king. You reign. Nobody else. That's it. Uh, And I want to touch on this is what it looks like when God is king. Is he comes in, he confronts evil. He confronts the thing that enslaves his people. He destroys it. And then he welcomes his people to live under his reign. So you're going to see that over and over again. And maybe you guys are already jumping ahead to seeing a, how this is going to connect. Um, then we go, we go to Mount Sinai and the 10 commandments, God saying, Hey, I want to make a covenant. You're going to be my covenant people. The people are like, yeah, that's awesome. And so while that's happening, Moses is going up Mount Sinai and he's getting the blueprints for building the tabernacle. And while he's doing that, seeing the cloud at the top of the mountain, while Moses is doing that, they've just been set free from, from Egypt and they've already whined and complained even before they get to the Red Sea, they've whined and complains like, let's just go back to Egypt. This is terrible. Uh, but they're, they're there. <laughs> Moses is getting the blueprints for the tabernacle from God. And while they're doing that, that's when we have the golden calf. And God wants to wipe him out. And Moses says, remember your covenant with Abraham. And God has, has mercy on them. They go down and they build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is, so now remember, God has become their king. And now the tabernacle is rebuilding that access. So again, going back to Eden, uh, access to God, uh, access to God's presence is being restored. Uh, God will rule and reign as their king. So if you go through again, this is another cool thing to study on your own, but if you go through the blueprints of the tabernacle, it's all imagery that all points to the garden of Eden. That's an Exodus. So you can look up really rad. Um, and then Exodus ends with, they've built this tabernacle, but Moses can't enter. So there's this, it's emphasizing, there's still this barrier. It's not, Eden hasn't been restored. There's still something that has to be dealt with 
because man is broken. Even though God is their king, um, they've built this tabernacle that God's going to dwell in their midst, but it's, they're not fully connected the way heaven and earth was overlapped in the garden. Got it? You guys still with me so far? Cool. Uh, then we go Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and that's what happens. Uh, the new generation, Joshua comes in, Moses dies. Uh, remember the people doubted. So then they don't go into the promised land. Joshua comes in. Joshua uh, leads the new generation in. Um, a theme that you hear over and over in Judges is uh, they had no king in those days. And then it'll de- describe something or it'll, it'll tell something and then say, and they had no king in those days. And then we get to the book of Samuel where I want to camp for a second. Uh, so at this point, Israel has been beaten by the Philistines. So try to catch us all up on the story if you're not familiar. So they have the Ark of the Covenant. Israel gets cocky that they have this Ark. They're treating it just like a good luck charm. So they don't approach God. They don't ask him anything. They just go, hey, we have this thing. We don't lose any battles when we have this thing. Let's just take it over and knock out the Philistines. God doesn't go with them. Philistines wreck them, steal the Ark and the Covenant and take it. And with that, after all God has done and through the ups and downs of the Israelites' faithfulness, just like that, they're torn and they go to Samuel and they say, give us a king like all the other nations. Now, what's super interesting is that God is their king, right? I've been making this case that that's the important thing, that God is reigning as their king, right? So he, the people go to Samuel and say, give us a king that we can be like all the other nations. They're, they're feeling like, man, the Philistines, they're going to come back. They're going to get us. We need a king. We want to be like these other nations. But God has called them the whole time to be a contrast people. But in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite grace, if you go back to Deuteronomy, there's the verse of the law of the king, what, what you're going to do when you're going to appoint a king. So God's told them kind of like, hey, I'm your king, but you guys are such a wreck that you're going to appoint yourself a king. And well, let's just read Deuteronomy and we'll let the Bible speak for itself. Deuteronomy 17, 14. So this is way before. Uh, when you come to the land, which the Lord, your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, so God's saying, when you get there, this is what you're going to say. I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. So this is just them. God's not condoning it. He's just saying, this is what you're going to say. And God's making the best just in his grace, making the best of that. And then saying, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord, your God chooses. And then he goes and describes, well, what does that look like? Uh, One from among your brethren, you shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also, it shall be... When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest 
the Levites, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Then he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of the law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So you can kind of see what God's doing here. He's saying, okay, you're going to appoint a king. This is the kind of king you're going to appoint. And then God gives all the directions. And when you look at it, you go, okay, so the king has to be this guy who is totally different than any other king that there has ever been. And he's basically just this guy. I, in my mind, I'm picturing this king that's just pointing to tabernacle or just pointing to God being like, that's, that's it. That this is my job. You guys wanted to, you had God, your King and you, the people, and you guys wanted to put somebody here. So I'm just going to point you to the real King. That's what God's saying is this is the kind of King you're going to appoint. And so in Deuteronomy, we have that. So now back to where we were, when the people are asking for the King first Samuel eight, uh, four through 21, I'll read this. Uh, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So they're not just saying we want a king, but notice they're saying their whole point is that they're a contrast people. And they're saying we want to be like everybody else. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in the way that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. They don't want me as their king. That's what God's saying. It's not you, Samuel. It's me. They don't want me as their king. But they have rejected me. I should not reign over them according to all the works that they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day with, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they're doing to you also now, therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the behavior of the King who will reign over, over them. And then this next part's epic is Samuel goes to them and spells it out for them. Uh, and just the ignorance. And we need to humbly read this because this is us a lot. This is me a lot. So as I mock them, I realize this is the same ditch that I fall, fall into myself. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. So you remember in Deuteronomy, you're not supposed to amass horses, not supposed to amass. So he's going through saying, you guys are going to blow it. He will take your sons and appoint them to his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields. So the land is at this point is supposed to be divided up evenly. So they're, he's the king's going to take the land back from them. He's going against what they've already, they've already done. Uh, he will take your daughter. Uh, where was that? And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a 10th of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them in to 
to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will, you will be his servants and you will cry out in these days because of your king, who, king who you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So like, Hey, this is what it's going to be like. And what does it sound like? Slavery sounds like Egypt, right? It's like, all right, you're going to fall into the same trap that we've already been walking through in just a short time. Genesis, I mean, up to, or in Samuel, uh, the kingdom of men ultimately leads to slavery, slavery. You're going to be slaves. And so, uh, nevertheless, the people refused. So Samuel says, this is what it's going to be. This is what it's going to be. And they're just so hard hearted, which makes you think you, you remember back in Egypt, uh, how Pharaoh had a hard heart. You're kind of thinking at this point, does Israel have a hard heart? They're just not hearing this. Samuel's telling them he's leading them. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a King for us that we also can be like all the nations and that our King may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So he's warned them. People ask Samuel, Samuel warns, God gives them what they want. Emphasizing man is incapable. We are, and this is the broken nature. This is the broken nature. This is what happened in the garden. This is the, the culmination. This is the sum of Adam and Eve stepping out from under sin coming into the world and building the kingdom of man is that man is incapable of governing himself without God reigning as King over him. It will always lead to slavery. And so we see this in the, the book of Kings. So if we flash forward to the book of Kings where we have, have Saul and King David, and it is a train wreck uh, back in Judges, we see this kind of cycle happening where uh, the people are doing well. They get complacent. They reject God. God brings judgment. Judgment comes. People freak out, repent. God redeems them in their complacency. They run from God. They abandon God. They look to something else, another God. And this, this cycle happens over and over in Judges. Well, there's this wave happening over and over in Kings, just recording these Kings tanking and tanking and tanking. There's supposed to be this Royal King that's coming from the line of Judah, David's line, right? So at this point we get to the second Kings and Israel is now divided there's the two, the Northern and the Southern. And we have Israel is the Northern tribes and Judah is the Southern tribe. And Judah is the line of David where this King is supposed to come. Who's going to set them free. Right? So <clears throat> all through old Testament, we have a uh, quick recap. Remember God is King. Man is communing with God and God is using man as the vehicle by which he rules his good earth, right? Ever since then, it's been since man came out and started his own kingdom, it's been train wreck after train wreck. And the longing that is the, the thread that's being run through this whole thing is the people longing for their king that's going to come save them. This is, this is the Old Testament. This is the test, the tension that's being built up in the Old Testament. So these kings, 
really wrap it up really quickly, the Kings do a terrible job. And I'm myself included. We have a tendency to like, you know, we have like the Bible heroes and then we have like the Bible villains and we just kind of put them in whatever camp problem is that everyone in the Bible that's human is human like you and I. And so if you guys were then to see everything in my life, you would, you would go, I think if we're all honest, so I'll be the first one to be honest is you'll go like, yeah, he was good. He did some good stuff. And then when he wasn't listening to the Lord, he was pretty terrible. So that's, that's the story. So we, even King David, like man, after God's own heart, he's this hero. Like, man, David's awesome. David tanked. He did terrible. He was a huge letdown. Is that okay? David, maybe David is going to be this King. And David does a terrible job. Uh, Solomon, I think is to me, Solomon epitomizes this or it's easiest to like explain is so David had this idea God, like we have our permanent place. You need to have a permanent place. Let me build your tabernacle. And God says to him like, nah, I'm good. uh, But I'm going to build a kingdom through you. And so he's, he's pointing to Jesus to give that one away. But Solomon ends up building the tabernacle. So remember we have Eden, which then the first tabernacle is then pointing us back to original intent, back to Eden. So now Solomon builds a tent. And if you want to go study that one, same thing. It's all pointing back to Eden in seven days in all, all the imagery. It's very detailed. So Solomon builds this tabernacle, but then Solomon literally, I guess I can't, not literally, but Solomon becomes Egypt. So even Solomon's like, Oh man, he had these like super bright and awesome moments. But Solomon is the, Solomon starts marrying other wives, starts amassing multiple wives to have alliances with other kings. And then he institutes those wives and their land that they represent their gods. So they start worshiping those gods. He starts amassing horses. He amasses a ton of wealth, which we all know. And he's the first king to introduce slave labor. And if we go from Solomon and look back to Deuteronomy 17, it's the antithesis of Deuteronomy 17, right? Is Solomon has become, he's a picture of Egypt. Solomon's a picture of Pharaoh to where it, we don't even need this. It's not that it needs to be some other evil is that man's, Man's kingdom is inherently going to bring us into slavery and slavery unto ourselves. We don't need this mass crazy other villain to come out of nowhere from out of the picture and come into our storyline. Our own kingdom, our own wickedness will bring us into slavery. So God lets judgment come and the Assyrians come and they conquer the Northern kingdom. They conquer Israel wiped out. And then there's this hope, but the Royal line, the line of Judah where David's going to come from, they're still around. Nope. Babylonians come wipe out Judah. And we're left in this place of man. What happened? Did, did God abandon us? Is the covenant 
did we do such a bad job? Did God just call the covenant? Like covenants off guys can't, can't deal with you anymore. And they're lost. Israel is destroyed. Judah's destroyed. Jerusalem's in shambles and this promise of a King. And this is the part we have to remember and be constantly reminding ourselves of is that they were looking to a King. They were looking to a King. And then this Royal line, that was the devastation is that this Royal line, this was, they're sent into exile that Israel, Judah's in exile now. And so then we get to Isaiah and Isaiah is a, he was a prophet in the Southern kingdom. Uh, he lives in, in Jerusalem and he predicts the fall of Babylon. Um, and that Jerusalem will be defeated. Uh, and during that in, in doing so, and then being defeated, it's, I wonder, I wonder if the, if the covenant's on, I wonder what's going to happen. And so Isaiah has this poem. It's Isaiah 52. I'm going to read through it if you want to start turning there while I'm explaining it. But Isaiah 52 is this sweet poem that he's painting. And he's describing Jerusalem is in shambles. The people are lost, not knowing what, what, what are we going to do? What's the state of the king? How is this ever going to be working out there? They are defeated. They are defeated. Uh, I don't even know. I don't even have an analogy for us as Americans to try to tie this in. This is devastation for them. And so in this poem, Isaiah is speaking of with that as the landscape that there's this watchman on the tower and he's looking out on the horizon on the mountains. And there's supposed to be a messenger that's going to be coming on the mountains, giving them the news of what's going to be happening. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news the gospel. So what's this good news who proclaim peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion. So all those things are encapsulated in this statement. This is what he's saying. Your God reigns. That's the good news. Like in the midst of you think you're defeated, you think it's over. And to be honest, you totally deserve it. You don't deserve any of this covenant that God has kept with you, but Good news. God's still the king. God's still the king. That's the good news. Um, and then watch the response. Awesome. Uh, your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift their voices. With their voices, they shall sing together. So this is pointing back to Exodus 15. As God is proclaimed king, what is the response of the people? So they they left Egypt and and they passed through the Red Sea. So they're they're captors, their oppressors are dealt with. And in Exodus 15, they sing a song together. That's the appropriate response of us. This is a worship pastor coming out of me. That's the appropriate response of us as believers. When we, when we gaze upon the fact that we have been freed from slavery and we are now living under a righteous and Royal King who has given us victory, no matter what we face in life, that we have ultimate victory that causes us to sing together. It's the importance of corporate worship. So we see, uh, that was verse eight. Your watchmen shall lift their voices with their voices. They shall sing together for they shall see eye to eye. When the Lord brings back Zion, break forth into joy, sing together. Same thing. Exodus 15. Um, you wasted place of Jerusalem for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm. This is another 
flashback to Exodus, Exodus 6, 6, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in Exodus 6, 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondages and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Uh, Then now back into Isaiah in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's pointing to the promise to Abraham that not just Israel is blessed, but all the earth is going to be blessed through the line that's going to come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, tracing all the way through Judah, David, and Jesus. This is the good news that our King still reigns, that he hasn't forgot about the promise, the promise. And then, so we have, we have there. I think there's like one more paragraph in Isaiah 52, and then it goes right into Isaiah 53, but we need to read that seamlessly. This is the, it's a continuation of the story. So he's saying, uh, the messenger is coming. Hey, good news. God is still King. He still reigns. And then he says, uh, in Isaiah 53, who has believed our report and whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he, he's here and, and who have you believed it? And to who was it revealed to you that, that he came? And then it goes into Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. And this is all pointing to, this is the type of King that the Israelites and the children of God should have expected from the beginning reading Isaiah 53, we never should have expected a King that was going to come with a massive army and he was going to rule with an iron fist. He spells out, he was going to be a suffering servant who was going to come and humble himself and humble himself unto death and die for his people. That's what Isaiah 53 is talking about with the, uh, the suffering servant. Um, and then from there, we're going to launch into the gospels. Sweet. I have maybe 30 minutes left. So this is why with all this tension building up. So we we've gone from Genesis through the old Testament as clearly or as much as I can through the old Testament. We're looking for a King, looking for a King. We need a King. Isaiah is saying the King came, your King reigns. And so all that tension, just the same way I was saying Isaiah 52 and 53, you want to read through that seamlessly. I think we can also have a tendency to just pick up with the new Testament and like, well, here's a new story. Like the old Testament was that story. Read that book. It's a cool book. It's old, has some crazy stuff in it. There are a lot of dying. Okay. Now I'm going to read this new book and this new book starts. Jesus is born a baby. The gospels are addressing this tension that has built all the way through the old Testament. This is why Matthew starts with a genealogy. Matthew's pointing all the way back and he's like, okay, think back. This is the genealogy. We're tracing this. This is the tension that's building. This is the tension that's building. And then as I already said in the very beginning, Matthew four seventeen, it's uh, the summary of Jesus's ministry. Uh, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, this is why Mark, uh, again, we've, I already said it, but Mark 1.14, the summary of Jesus's ministry, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the, the good news. Um, myself included I, in studying this, 
to be totally frank, totally honest with you, like my own eyes have opened to this theme a lot is we view the gospels. We can as it's a way of individual salvation, or we view the gospel as an individual salvation. Do you believe the gospel that Jesus came and he paid the price for your sin so that you can go to heaven? Like, isn't that, if we're honest, isn't that kind of what we say the gospel is like, that's, you're sharing the gospel, the gospel that Jesus came and stood in place and died for you. And although that's true, it's missing the more major overarching load bearing part of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the King who came and that King who came did so many things. That's what the gospels are teaching us. And that's the, the gospel. That is the good news of the gospels. Amen. Uh, this is why um, Luke opens up with, this is what he says, an orderly account of those things that have been fulfilled among us. So he doesn't just pick up and, well, this is the story. Jesus was born and I'm going to tell you about his life. And there's going to be this, these four stories with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that are just going to all go through the story of Jesus' life. And you're going to see that Jesus was this really cool guy. And then once you get through all those four stories that we spell out, meticulously four times, then you're going to get to cool theology and doctrine with Paul. Like, so get to that stuff. That's the heavy stuff. No, the heavy stuff is in, that's why it's said four times in the gospels um, is that, look, this is what's being fulfilled. It's the kingdom. It's the inauguration of the King. John starts with in the beginning, which where else do we see that? In the beginning, Genesis, he's throwing it back to Genesis. And then further down, 14 uh, verses later, John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt or translated tabernacle. So the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So he's restoring. You can see this whole time. God is restoring, trying to lead his people this plan of original intent, getting back to where now Jesus is where heaven and earth fully overlap. And it's not a, a tabernacle that they built that they can't go in or, or they can go in if they go through these customs. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the overlapping of, of heaven and earth. Um, and then we get to, um, Oh, so I need to stay there. So Jesus is the, Jesus is the overlapping of, of heaven and earth. And you see that God is, Jesus has come. God's going to declare him as King and Eden being restored. And then we go to, uh, the culmination of what is all the gospels. So we have his birth, we have his life, and then we have his death and the death is the full inauguration of him as King. And we see it in even the ironic imagery. So if you go to John uh, 12, 32, I'll get to that part. Um, but Jesus is fully crowned. God fully becomes King and Jesus is given a robe. He's given a crown of thorns. It's written above him that he's the King of the Jews. And then John twelve thirty two. This is what Jesus said of himself, predicting of his death. And I will be lifted up from the earth. I will draw, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
So he's exalted. He's given a robe. He's given a crown called the king and he's exalted. And what a backwards way of thinking about a reigning king, right? This is the upside down kingdom of our Lord. This is the contrast kingdom that he came and he brought. This is the gospel that all four gospels are speaking of that we abandon our king that even in our best efforts, our kingdoms only lead to slavery and that the king we abandoned has come and defeated our oppressors and set us free. And now he invites us to live under his reign and be his contrast people to a lost world. Just like Genesis, he is calling his people to be the vehicle by which his kingdom is realized in the earth today. And we are still in that stage now. So what does this mean for us? So unpacking that, I hope that's been somewhat clear. What does it mean for us that the kingdom of God has come with Jesus, that God has been inaugurated as King? How how does this change our life? When we walk out those doors, when we wake up tomorrow, what's going to be different? I'll tell you two things first that it doesn't mean. Uh, Imagine I uh, worship teams up here and I have to go away for a while. And I tell Micah, I was like, Micah, I want you to run this and I've shown you how to run it. You know what I want and I leave and they would never do this, but say the worship team just goes haywire and they're all just doing dumb stuff. And I show up and the worship team, it's chaos in here. There's chairs are everywhere. The worship team's out of control and Micah's sitting out in the lobby and I walk in. What's going on? I don't know. I was just going to wait for you to get back. And then we'd go in there. I guess we'd deal with this together. You think I'm happy? Did Micah fulfill what I wanted from him? No, the kingdom of God coming is an excuse for us to back out of culture and say, I'm not going to engage because I'm not of this world. This isn't my kingdom. My King is Jesus and we're cool. So whatever, I'm not going to get involved. That's not an appropriate response. And some of us are predisposed to having that response that, Hey, he's my personal savior. He's my King. I don't want to deal with all this muddy stuff of, of the world and and whatnot. I'm just going to check out. And some of us are predisposed to the other ditch of the Peter, like, Oh yeah, kingdom's coming. I'm going to bring it. I'm going to bring it with a fist and I'm going to bring it with some, some harsh words I'm going to let these people know what's up, that Jesus reigns. And if they have a problem with it, we can have words. So say, though, continue with that analogy. I come back and say, Mike is just beating up the entire worship team. Like, I'm trying to get him to do what you told me to do. Like, no, dude, like, that's not what I want. I showed you, I showed you how you're to lead them. You're to lead them by serving them, by becoming the least of them. The least of these is the, is the highest in the kingdom of heaven. Why would you treat them so harshly? I haven't treated you harshly. Why would you lead them in that way? These are the two ditches that we can fall into. And this isn't the, the appropriate response from us. What we need to do is be kingdom minded people, knowing that we live under the kingdom of God and that we weren't saved from the world, but we were saved for the world. We are the vehicle by which the will of God is going to be done on this earth. We don't check out and the will of God is never for us to go and just start beating people up. Uh, 
it's that that's the that's the freakiness that that pops in people's minds when or probably when Rod says theonomy, we start like freaking out. Well, what does that mean? Are we just going to enforce? No. Applied theonomy is that believers with the example of Christ and his tenderness and truth and love are going and engaging in areas and bringing the will of God as God rules through his people. Uh, N.T. Wright in his book, How God Became King, um, says it so eloquently. I'll read this quote. Our questions have been wrongly put because they haven't been about the kingdom. They haven't been about God's sovereign saving rule coming on earth as in heaven. Instead, our questions have been about salvation that rescues people from the world instead of the world, instead of for the world. Going to heaven has been the object ever since the middle ages, at least in the Western church. Sin is what stops us from getting there. So the cross must deal with sin so that we can level so that we can leave this world and go to a much better one in the sky or in eternity or wherever. But this simply is untrue to the story of the gospels are telling, which again explains why we've all misread these wonderful texts. Whatever the cross achieves must be articulated. If we are to take the four gospels seriously within the context of the kingdom bringing victory, we are not saved from this world. We are saved for this world And the goal that has been from the beginning that God is spelling out is that he is bringing us back to original intent that he had in Eden, where we were one in his presence, that we could be in his presence and that we were the vehicle by which he would rule the earth. And so now we're in this weird place and going to be totally honest with you because there's, you probably have a bunch of questions and maybe a bunch of them I can't answer. And you're going to go home and have more questions as I have questions there's some ways where this is really rough. We're living as a kingdom people, but we're still living among the Pharaohs. God's King, but look outside, read the news. Like, does that, what does it look like? It's God's King. Well, look at the church. What does it look like? With God being King, we need to bring that. And I know it's hard. We're still living amongst the Pharaohs. We're still living amongst kingdoms. And to be quite honest, living amongst our own Kings as us, as little idol, idol factories, we can build daily building our own little kingdoms, taking bits of truth from scripture and then getting off the rails. We need to constantly be looking back to God as our King, as our guide, and then walking out into a world and having God's will be done on this earth through us. When, they got, when we view the gospel this way, we see the good news correctly, the good news that our God is king. So what can we do? So what are the tangibles? Uh, I'm not going to go into, Rob has spent so much time and so much effort unpacking what we can do politically for our communities uh, and for our country that, and that's his wheelhouse. Like, I'm not going to even try to explain that. So I'm going to try to back him up and come at it from a different angle. What does it look like for us to bring God's kingdom? What can I do? Well, if you read Psalm 72, and I encourage you to read it, maybe read it when you get home. It describes what it, it describes what we should see when God is ruling. And it's the needy, the broken, the persecuted, the hurting, and the poor are all being taken care of. That should be us, church. We see it also in James 1, 27. It tells us that 
uh, true and true religion is this. So true worship and who do you worship? You worship a King. So true worship of our King is this to visit the widow and the orphan in their affliction. Uh, so these are tangibles that I just came up with. Uh, and I'll be honest with you. They challenge me as well. And these are going to be challenging for you, but Hey, church, find somebody inside the church or outside the church that's hurting financially. That's really going through it. Love on them, bless them, invite them over for dinner, take them out for dinner, reach out to them, run to them. Uh, Another idea, contact Pastor Marty and see who in our church is sick and who's in the hospital or find out in your neighborhoods or in your work who's in the hospital and go visit them. Go love on them, take them, take them some food. Go visit those people. Um, minister to the widows. Uh, you guys have heard Rob talk about uh, Delia Grotti, how Harry Grotti just passed. And she's not the only widow in our church. Take care of the widows, church. Let's reach out. Love on them. Find a widow. Adopt them. Take them on a date once a week. Take them dinner. Take them out to dinner. Make sure they're taken care of. Is their lawn getting cut? Are there, is their house falling apart? Take care of them. Orphans. I don't know how the last time I remember... Hearing the stat, I don't know where it is now, but I think in Ventura County, we have 1,200 orphans. This one's heavy for me. 1,200 orphans in our backyard. For real, If we're real with ourselves, believers, is that what it looks like when our king is reigning? It doesn't. And I struggle with this just as much as you. In my, my mind, I go... Hey, my dad just passed, um, moved out to Santa Clarita, living with my mom, trying to be faithful and helpful in, in, in that area. My wife is sick and we have two babies. But at the same time, I mean, excuses are excuses. And I think it doesn't matter. It's not what the kingdom of God looks like, is that in our backyard we have 1,200 kids without a home. It's just not. We bring the kingdom. We act and bring God's will on the earth. And God's will would be that those kids were loved on and that they had a home. Amen. And we agree on that. So this is how we can start. But it's hard as we're living amongst the pharaohs. But this is our hope that one day our king will return and fully bring his kingdom here on earth. He will level every other kingdom that is trying to reign on the earth and he'll bring justice for the broken and for the hurting. And I'm going to fast forward all the way to revelation. And this is the hope we have. And it's also so cool to see the book, how God bookends from Genesis to Revelation, Revelation 22. It's the last chapter of the Bible. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life. Again, we have the garden, the tabernacle, Jesus. This is all imagery. This is new heaven and new earth. This is the garden. 
is restoring the garden. In the middle was the tree, which bore 12 fruits. Each tree yielded its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and in his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That they is pointing to us. Original intent. It went all, we've come full circle all the way back to Genesis, that God and Jesus are on the throne and his servants, us, his people are ruling this new heaven, new earth forever and ever. And he's brought it full back. It's the story of redemption. The kingdom is an essential story and the kingdom is the story of the Christian faith. Uh, I challenge you. It's, it's a big concept, but I encourage you to, I, I hope I've been clear um, through this. And I'm even thinking right now, I didn't pray before. So Lord Jesus, as you're outside of space and time, I pray that these words that I spoke this evening would, would glorify you and they would rest on people's hearts and minds. And Lord, the things that came from me, Lord, and, and my inadequacies as a, as a speaker and as a teacher, Lord, I pray that you would uh, use those things still to bring you glory and to bring these things to our remembrance. And Lord, and teach us what it's like to live as you are reigning king and what it looks like that we can bring your kingdom on this earth. Uh, I wish I did that at the beginning, but I hope that this challenges you. And as you go through your personal devotion time, uh, I would ask you have the kingdom mindset. Let this be turning in your brain. You're going to see a lot of times where you're going to go, ah, that's referencing the kingdom. That's kingdom language or read through the gospels. Now that we've unpacked what the theme of the gospels is that it's the inauguration of God as King. God has become King, the old Testament, all the tension of looking for that King, the gospel saying the King has come. And now from the gospels out to us is we're supposed to be proclaiming the good news that God is King. Hey, you don't need to be a slave anymore. Jesus is King. He's reigning. Come and live under his rule. You're not going to be enslaved. It's the greatest thing ever to live under his reign. That's the good news that we can share uh, with the world around us. Amen. This should drive us to, to be active in our communities. So those are real challenges tonight. I, I, I mean, challenges to myself as well. Find somebody who's sick. Find somebody who's, who's hurting and broken. Find somebody in the hospital. Find a widow. Find an orphan. And, and bless them. Let's be the, the people of God who are living under his reign and seeing what this, the kingdom of God really looks like the church who's, who's active.